This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in today. We are in Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, we're picking up in our series. We only have a couple of chapters left to go in Romans. I'm not sure where we're going to go next with our new series, if we're going to do a topic or a book, but uh, I'll keep you posted, and uh, I'm looking forward to whatever that's going to be. So we're in Romans chapter 14, verse 1 says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In verse 4, you can't solve a problem until you understand the issue. And you can't properly answer a question until you understand what is being asked. And these brethren in Rome had a problem. And if we can't understand what the problem was and how Paul went about correcting it, then then we can't use Romans 14 to fix the problems in our time. So we have to get our heads around what the issue was that was hindering these brethren and why Paul was addressing it. And when we get that clear in our minds, we'll be less likely to misapply Paul's solution to problems that he does not address in Romans 14. And so that's a roundabout way of saying that Romans 14 has been misapplied many, many times and in many different ways in the religious world. And so I just want to um, take a fresh perspective. I just want us to put aside any previous teachings and, and, and conceptions that we have about Romans chapter 14 and just try to take a fresh look at it and see what, what the issue is in the context, see if we can deduce that and what Paul's solution is. So to start with, there were some in Rome, the brethren, there were members of the church there that Paul describes in verse 1 as being weak in faith. Um, or you might say the faith if you're reading from the old King James Version. So they were weak in faith or weak in the faith. So what did what did Paul mean by that? And that's going to help us understand the problem again. So the brother who was weak in faith had a very strong conscience. So we can't come to the conclusion that this being weak in the faith means that uh, they were wishy-washy or they were uh, spiritually weak, or they lacked conviction or something like this. It's quite the opposite as as we continue reading in the text. If you just continue in verse 2, their conscience was, in fact, very strong. Their convictions were, were, were very strong. In fact, so strong that it kept these weak brethren from eating certain foods or meats for fear that it was sinful, if you read verse 2. Uh, so there, there's no indication that he is being slack in his service this weak brother. It's quite, it's quite the opposite, in fact. He's being very diligent, and he's being very careful to guard his heart and his conscience. So what does weak in faith mean? I believe in the context, what Paul means is that uh, it's not that he's unfaithful, but weak in the faith means uh, that they are weak in their understanding of the faith. Right, because these brethren who Paul again describes this way were very convicted and they were observing holy days in verse 5 and they were imposing that or at least trying to impose that upon others. And so all this indicates that he was weak and or she was weak in their understanding of the faith and what the faith constituted, right? And in their mind, it, it included restrictions against eating certain foods and observing uh, certain days, or I guess it, it obtained positive ordinances to uh, observe certain days in a religious way. But uh, that simply wasn't the case. And what they were doing in their abstaining from certain foods 
and observing certain days wasn't wrong in and of itself, but it was wrong for them to impose that upon others. And so his conscience up to this point, the, the weak brother's conscience up to this point in time when Paul is writing, was not fully informed with regard to uh, the doing away or the abolition of those dietary laws under the Judaic system and ceremonial holy, holy days, uh, whatever those were that they were, were observing. And so he was judging as a result, he was, as Paul says, judging the one who did eat meat as as sinning. You look in verse 3, uh, likewise, those who understood that Jesus declared all foods clean, as Mark says in Mark seven nineteen. They were viewing their brethren who were restraining and their brethren who were judging them with contempt, right? And so they were kind of looking down their noses, verse 3 of chapter 14, uh, for those or toward those brethren who were refraining. And so this is, this is the issue that Paul is seeking to address here and to, and to correct, to inform the uninformed with regard to meats and holy days, and then to rebuke also judgmental attitudes in matters of opinion so and, and things that are just inconsequential to God right if we want to set aside a certain day to observe for ourselves and spend that in prayer or spend that in Bible study or or in some particular act of service well then if it falls within the realm of God's authority and we can choose to do that then absolutely absolutely but we have no right to impose that on somebody else and say, well, you were sinning if you don't do what I'm doing, right? Well, that's, that's your, that's your choice. And that's your, you know, exercising your prerogative to, to do that. And we have no right to bind our opinions on, on other people, but we better make sure that we understand that it's an opinion uh, that someone is trying to bind or not bind. And so Paul makes it clear from the outset that what brother non-eater will say, we'll call him that, what brother non-eater and brother day observer was so upset about was nothing more than his opinion. Was nothing more than his opinion. And he needed to learn to regard it as such without condemning those around him, without condemning his brothers and sisters who did eat. Brother eater and brother day non-observer. That's kind of a convoluted way of saying that, but I think you get the picture. In verse 3, he says, The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So if this were a matter of doctrine, let me say this. If this were a matter of doctrine, that's something God had determined for men to do with these specific issues of, of eating or observing certain days, then Paul would have set the record straight because that's what he does everywhere else in the New Testament. And he exposes who's in the wrong, and he exposes who's in the right and what needs to be done. Some examples can be seen in Philippians 3, 2, and 3, Galatians 5, 12, uh, among other letters. And uh, that is clearly not the case here. He's not picking sides here. Of course, there's not really a side to pick in, in those other contexts either, but you, you get the picture, right? It's it's God's side that matters and God's truth that matters. And so that's what he holds up as the standard, and that's what he was inspired to, to preach. And in the course of doing that, well, then it was exposed who was in the wrong and who was actually standing for the truth. But this is clearly not the case here because God has accepted both men, whether they chose to eat certain foods or not or observe certain days or not. And so in in the same way we find in, in verse 1, in like manner, the one who ate meat and who did not observe certain days was to accept the one weak in faith. That's what we read at the outset a minute ago. They're to accept those who are weak 
in the faith, but that is weak in their understanding of the faith, right? but not for the purpose of judging his opinions. So this was the instruction that both parties were to abide by, to work together in unity without imposing their scruples and opinions on, on one another. Right? But that uh, assumes that we can tell the difference between what's a matter of doctrine and, and what's a matter of opinion. Right, And when at the outset I said that Romans 14 has been misapplied to a great degree in the religious world, uh, that's what I was speaking about, uh, That mostly that failure to discern, okay, what's a matter of doctrine and what's a matter of opinion? Because people have taken Romans chapter 14 and said, see, Paul says you need to accept me, when in fact they are trying to uh, condone or teach something that is condemned in Scripture, right? Like social drinking or... Um, differences with regard to Jesus' teaching on marriage, right, and who is allowed to scripturally divorce and what the exception is for that, and, and from Matthew 19, and say, well, you just need to accept me even though we have difference of opinion. Uh, that is that is not what we are to do. So there's a different set of instructions with how we are to approach one another when there's a difference in our beliefs regarding doctrine. And we have to look at passages like Philippians chapter 2 and Ephesians 4, to understand, first of all, what our attitude needs to be, and then also what our approach should be and how we go about that. But that's not what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14. All right, in Romans chapter 14, he's dealing with differences of opinion, not differences in doctrine. And so the point is, in verse 19, in these differences of opinion, not to bind them, and he says in, in verse 19, to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So pursue the things that are that are consequential, that that do matter, that God has said are unto edification, uh, as Paul teaches in First Corinthians chapter fourteen. So throughout this text, we're reminded that also we're all ultimately accountable to God for the decisions that we make. So that's something that's not exclusive. That's not a teaching that's exclusive to Romans chapter fourteen. But Paul really wants to drive that point home. Verse eleven: We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So final judgment is going to be on an individual basis. And someone might say, well, wait a minute. What, didn't Jesus collectively hold local churches accountable in Revelation 2 and 3? And that's absolutely right. He he did. All right? And we're going to be held accountable as of in, individuals as, insofar as our relationship to those local churches. Right? So if we were at Laodicea or Ephesus, or one of the other churches that Jesus Jesus addressed, well then, well then, yeah, we individually had a responsibility to correct that action because we were part of that collectivity, that local church. But final judgment will be on an individual basis, strictly, and that's something that Paul reinforces here. We are responsible for acting in accordance with our own conscience, with our own conscience, and so there may be things you know that. It, that do not sit well with my conscience, uh, that are okay with uh, okay with you. But so far as God is concerned, He hasn't condemned it, even though I feel uneasy about it in my conscience. And what Paul is saying here is that that it's a if it's a violation of your conscience, well then you can't go through with it. Verse five: Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Verse eight. So in the final analysis, everything I I do should be for the Lord and done in good conscience for Him. 
even if my conscience has not caught up to my intellect, right? Which is what was happening here with these brethren who were continuing to observe certain matters that were no longer consequential to God. They weren't part of the new covenant, abstaining from certain foods and observing certain days, right? But as as they were informed, they were going to grow out of that. But if they couldn't do that in good conscience, well, then it, it they had to follow their conscience, right? Because it, it would be sin not to. It's a sin to violate one's one's conscience. So the weak brethren in Rome... Again, we're now going to be informed after reading Paul's letter that what they had sought to impose upon others was nothing more than their own opinion. However, they could choose to continue eating only vegetables if they wanted to for themselves, and that would be fine. That would be perfectly fine with God so long as they did so without condemning others. And again, all of this serves, I think, to reinforce to us the importance of preserving our conscience. So the the word conscience itself is not used. I'm using that word over and over again. You're probably thinking, I don't see that anywhere in the text that Paul is not using that word. Well, we know in other places like 1 Timothy 5, and uh, when he's standing before uh, different civil authorities, he talks about the importance of preserving his own conscience and how he's done everything in good conscience up until this, this that point in his life. And so <clears throat> even though he doesn't use that word specifically, this is what he has in view. Again, because of verse 5, he speaks of being convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, doing it for the Lord. Uh, Verse 14, if he considers it clean. And so these are all indications that he's speaking of an individual's judgment, right? He's speaking of an individual's judgment and an individual's honest appraisal of his own activities before God, wherein God has given him the liberty to act. So I have to keep underlining that for us because that's important to keep at the front of our minds. All right, Paul is talking about an area wherein God has given us liberty to to act. So this text, again, is not a guide for settling doctrinal differences. Matters that God has already settled in which we are not at liberty to act any other way. Because if we do, we sin and we separate ourselves from him because we're acting without his authority. So if we desire, again, to know what our approach and attitude should be in those cases, then we look to Ephesians 4, 1 through 4, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Philippians 2, etc. Lots of other passages, but that's not the point of our study today. We're talking about choices and matters of opinion. And an important important lesson from this text in, in verse 13 is the consideration that we should have of each other. That's really what's driving this teaching that Paul has given to these to these brethren. He wants them to be considerate of one another, work together, pursue the things that which make for peace. And he says in verse um, 13, he says, don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. And then verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Right? So if what we choose, if what we choose to do, even though it's not sinful in and of itself, even though what we choose to do is not sinful of itself, if it serves to embolden our brethren to sin by violating their conscience, then we have sinned. We have put a stumbling block in, in, in their way, we, and we, ha- we can't have anything to do with those things. Paul will go on to say that we are not to do anything. Verse 21, he says, we're not to do anything by which your brother stumbles. All right, so that's the degree. He's talking about the degree of consideration we're to have for one another. 
Again, we should pursue the things which make for peace. And remember, verse 17 and 18, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So this is the course that we should be taking. If we can discern what is a matter of opinion, what is a matter of liberty versus what is a matter of faith, meaning what is a matter of doctrine, we'll keep Romans 14 in its proper perspective. Right? Understanding this text, understanding Romans 14 will help us tolerate each other where we should and also combat error where we must and when we must. Paul is not saying Paul is not saying that a man should be tolerated in a local church or accepted when he teaches another doctrine so long as one he is convinced in his own mind he does it for the Lord if he gives God thanks if he considers it clean and if he has his own conviction before God. All right, those are all phrases Paul uses in Romans chapter 14 of an individual's activities wherein God has given him liberty to act. Right, but none of those criterion fit with a doctrine of God. Paul isn't saying, well, if somebody thinks it's okay uh, to curse and they're convinced in their own mind and they do it for the Lord and they give God thanks and they consider it clean and they have this own conviction before God, well, then accept them. Right, We always have to remember that what man thinks is not equal to what God says ever. Now, we have to come to our own honest conclusions about what his word says, but they have to be our conclusions and we have to remember that what we think is never equal to what God has actually said. And so we have to continually go back and reevaluate ourselves and test test our beliefs by the scripture and reinforce those those beliefs to make sure to make sure we are in fact seeking God on his terms and his conditions. Is regardless if I'm convinced in my own mind as some, you know if something is true, what matters is if it's authorized by God and we can easily conflate those two. And we never want to be guilty of that. I can, um, I, I appreciate so very much older brethren who have helped me in so many ways. I can remember several years ago, and the, this is just a personal illustration of the, of the point that I just made. So pardon my, my personal story as I digress here. Several years ago, I was in a Bible study, and I was thinking about the question of baptism and having several studies with others on that. And, uh, they had uh, in, in the course of those studies, a question came up about James chapter two and saving faith and what he defines as saving faith. And so I was with a, an older brother uh, who was a preacher and elder in the church. And I said, you know, I've, I've got some questions, you know, and it, I was just parroting what, you know, had been said to me in another study. And uh, I said, it, you know, and it confused me. I was, I would just, I was in doubt and uh, I just wasn't sure. And instead of that brother saying, well, you, that matter should be settled in your mind, and and you know better than this, and this is the standard, and so on and so forth. He said, "Well, let's go take a look at that text. Let's go take a look at that text and and see if what that individual was telling you is actually there. And let's consider even the specific verbiage and go back to the original language, and let's just see. Let's test. Let's test what it is they've said by the Word of God." Right now, that's that's illustrative of someone who understands that what they think and their conclusions is not the same thing as what God has said. Right, and so they want to go back to the Word of God to be sure. Right, they're not a, they're not afraid of that investigation. Right, and I, I think that's a powerful lesson for us, and I think it's indicative of someone who is honestly and objectively seeking 
the truth of God's word. And so Paul concludes with some practical instruction for us as we move into chapter 15. So we're just going to touch and squeak into chapter 15 a little bit because it's actually related to this discussion in in chapter 14. So Paul says in in verse 1 of chapter 15, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So the condescension from brother non-eater had to come to an end, just as assuredly as brother eater's judgment had to come to an end. Right, So it's a two-way street. They were to accept one another. And perhaps non-eater would continue to refuse to eat certain things, and that would be fine because it didn't really matter to God. And the other brother could continue to eat so long as he wasn't putting a stumbling block in front of his other brethren and encouraging them to sin. Verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. So Paul touches on that point again. He's he's. He's repeating that point from verse 19 of chapter 14 about building up one another, right? But the American Standard is just using this word now, edification, rather than tearing each other down over issues that don't really matter to God, right? They're, they're, they're not moral issues. They're not doctrinal issues until and unless engaging in them leads a brother to sin, leads a brother to violate his own conscience. So Christ is our ultimate example in this regard in all things. Just as he is in all things, he is our king and creator and sustainer. And despite all of that, he still, when he came and still now, does not live to please himself. But rather, he sacrificed and continued to sacrifice for the good of others, even to the point of giving his own life. Just look at verse 3 of chapter 15. So how will we find strength and courage and motivation to fulfill these commands? We look at his example. And then Paul gives us another reason, too, in verse 4 of chapter 15. He says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So it's God who grants perseverance and encouragement through His Word. And He's calling us to accept one another just as just as Christ has accepted us. With all our faults and foibles and scruples, we're to do the same and help each other grow up and be mature men and women in Christ. Appreciate you tuning in today. I'm Jason Garcia, and this has been Faithful Sayings.